For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. Each year on Labor Day, we recognize and honor the incredible achievements and many contributions of working people. This year, however, is like no other. While we still honor the hard work of working people, the unemployment rate in New York State is at nearly 16%. Workers fear about their safety on the job and the safety of their families. Parents struggle with whether to send their children back to school, and many families struggle with how to pay for housing and food. And an alarming number of workers have died or become ill after being exposed to the coronavirus at work. To talk about where we are on this Labor Day 2020 and where we need to go is the president of of the New York State AFL-CIO, Mariel Salento. And Mariel, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Darcy. So let's remind people who the New York State AFL-CIO is. Who does that include? How many members, families, and retirees does the state federation represent? Right. Well, you know, we are the umbrella organization in the state of New York that represents two and a half million working men and women. Mm -hmm. And, you know... We are the largest uh, state labor federation in the country. Uh, We're also the most diverse state labor movement in the country. And most people, Darcy, think because we represent over 2 million members that our size is our greatest strength. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've always pushed back against that. And I say, no, it's not. Our diversity is our greatest strength. We are diverse by by region. You know, our members come from every single uh, region, every single neighborhood and community and zip code throughout the state from Buffalo to Brooklyn to Long Island and everywhere in between. Our members are represented in public sector unions and private sector unions and building trades unions. And our members are just the most diverse demographically in the country. Our members come from every single racial, religious, cultural, ethnic background, every sexual orientation. The greatness of this movement is that everyone is welcome. That defines who we are. And I think particularly in these difficult times where we see so much unrest across this country, the fact that the labor movement can stand there and hopefully be a beacon of hope and understanding amongst people to say, look at this, two and a half million members coming from all over uh, our uh, country, particularly here in the state of New York, to be able to say we are one labor movement and we are really one family. I think is something that I'm most proud of, that we work together as as easily as we do in this state. It doesn't mean that we don't disagree from time to time. That's okay because different unions have different priorities. Different sectors of the movement have different priorities. But when it comes down to it, the reality is we have two and a half million members going forward in one direction to speak with one voice on behalf of, of working men and women in the state of New York. That's our greatest strength. Not only now, but moving forward. And, you know, these are really unprecedented times that we're in right now in more ways than one. But the toll that COVID-19 has taken on working people. Talk to me about that. Well, I'll tell you, Darcy, we're about almost six months into this crisis now, this pandemic. And I've said before that uh, I've had to have or I've heard some difficult conversations uh, that many of our leaders in this state have had to have with their members, Mm -hmm. with family uh, relatives of members, Mm -hmm. because we've had so many of our of our members get 
you know, really sick and, and, and unfortunately many instances pass away and it's been excruciating. I've spoken to leaders obviously across the state and all, and all the unions, but particularly our transit workers, our municipal workers, our nurses, our, our retail wholesale, uh, and, uh, United food and commercial workers unions. And they have seen terrible loss. One life is too many, mm-hmm. but when you get into the hundreds, it's, it's just excruciating. And so, you know, it's taken a toll on this movement because we've lost brothers and sisters mm-hmm. uh, who have risked their own health, their own safety. Um, and they've risked the health and safety, quite honestly, of their families in order to provide the services that we all, that we all rely on for the last six months. You know, a lot of us have been in our homes They've been in the hospitals and in grocery stores and driving our buses and trains and picking up our sanitation. You know, nobody thinks of the sanitation workers who are out there every single day. Mm -hmm. They were essential workers and continue to be so. Uh, Obviously, our firefighters and so on and so forth. We owe our brothers and sisters this enormous debt of gratitude that I don't know we can ever repay. We're going to try to repay them, but they have sacrificed so much already for our health and our safety and our nourishment um, that, again, uh, we're going to try to repay them by showing them how much we appreciate them and fighting for them mm-hmm. and fighting for their cause. But I, I think it's something that we should all all keep in mind. And, and I'll just say this, that they continue to be devastated by by this pandemic. You know, we're we say we're almost six months into it, mm-hmm. but, you know, those who have left us, we're never going to see them again. Those who have been made severely ill by all of this and, and disease there hopefully most will recuperate and get better you know so many of our members so many workers in this state union and non-union it's not only the physical toll, i mean it's terrible in and of itself but the mental toll constant worrying that there's this continued risk of getting sick on the job and this constant worrying and questioning how carefully their employers are working to protect them, right? You have to think about that every single day. Are there safety standards in the workplace? Are there protocols whereby we're going to be safe every single day on the job? Are these workers outside of the union, because obviously union members are going to have a voice in the workplace, but all these other workers, are they going to have a voice in the process and go back to work? And have input in any of that? The mental toll that this is taking on working men and women throughout the state and throughout this country is excruciating. And we should be very mindful of that. And that's why um, moving forward, we have to work day and night here to keep workers safe. We have to protect them physically as well as economically. We have to rebuild our economy. And we have to, you know, we have to save the services that all New Yorkers rely on. And, and that's what we're, we're working on every single day. That's the way we repay all of our brave men and women. And and this is going to sound like a loaded question, but how do we do that? How do you keep workers safe and then also focus on rebuilding our economy? Right. All right. Well, that's a lot. Let's start first (laughs) with the safety aspect, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have to prioritize safety, as I said. Um, And that's for all workers, for every industry, for every sector, for every workplace. Nothing is more important. I hope that we can all agree on that. Right. So the legislature has already passed the bill establishing uh, safety standards in the public sector. Now we need to build on that by by passing the New York Heroes Act. And that would require safety and health plans 
specific to COVID-19 for private sector uh, employers. Then you have to look at different, so that's pretty straightforward, Mm -hmm. right? We've done things for the public sector. Now we have to work on this for private sector uh, workers. And that's what we're working on now. Um, We have to think about all of the different venues and sectors that are just now opening. Uh, Schools, for instance, you know, schools are going to be reopening here now in the next few weeks. And that represents a unique challenge because we have to have, we must have clear protocols for how and when school districts must close their buildings and and how health officials are going to perform contact tracing and initiate quarantines in the event of a of a positive COVID-19 case in the schools. I mean, look, I, I will say this. The priority has to be to protect every single person that walks into a school. Now, my wife is a teacher's aide in Rockland County. She's going to work next week, mm-hmm. right? I have three daughters in public school. They're going to be, you know, three of millions of children that are going to go back into those into those school, school buildings. We have teachers, obviously, custodians, security guards, clerical staff, the school nurses, all of them going into that building. Why are they going into that building? To teach our children, right? To mm-hmm. provide them with a better future. It is incumbent upon us to do every single thing that we can to make sure that they are safe and you know above all else. Mm-hmm. And we have to, of course, make sure that our children are safe. So that's a big deal. And that's something that, uh, you know, I know that the New York State United Teachers and the UFT uh, are working on 24 hours a day, seven days a week on behalf of their members. And we're we're here to support them in that. And that's obviously going to be a big part uh, of the conversation here over the next two weeks as schools start to reopen. Um, In addition, getting back to the safety and prioritizing the safety. Hopefully, you know, people talk about a second wave, and I don't know whether it's a second wave or a continuation of the first wave, mm-hmm. but but regardless, we have to make sure that we have adequate PPE moving forward for everyone. Um, we have to obviously recognize the unique nature of certain sectors like healthcare and transit and, and others where, particularly where workers are in direct contact with the public, uh, we need to make sure we have, uh, you know, getting back to the PPEs, probably have a 90-day supply is what the experts are saying from from the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to have adequate staffing plans and backup plans. You know, there's no excuse now. Mm-hmm. We've gone through it. It was six months ago. We've had half a year to learn from the initial outbreak. No excuses. So we'll keep everybody uh, on their toes on that. So what about the workers who were exposed to the coronavirus while they were at work and and the workers who were forced into unemployment due to this pandemic? Well, that's a good question. Look, it's it should be pretty straightforward. Uh, from our point of view, it is. If a worker was exposed in the workplace, then that worker should receive the best available care at no cost, uh, as well as wage replacement, survivor benefits, if God forbid they should die. And this, this can be achieved by something we've been talking about for a long time, and that is establishing a presumption of workplace exposure. And that would allow quick access to financial security for those stricken workers, and that's what they deserve. So what that means is this, that if a worker gets sick, it should be presumed that he or she got sick on the job, Mm -hmm. right? And that doesn't mean that an employer still cannot contest the claim because they can, but we're starting with the presumption that the worker got sick on the job. Why is that important? Because we have nurses in this state who still are seeing hundreds of patients a day, not a week, not a month, a day. 
We have workers in grocery stores, in supermarkets, who are seeing hundreds of customers come across their line at checkout counter every single day. And those who are working stocking the shelves and working in the produce section and all those different workers who work in that industry. Think about it. The way things stand right now, the way they stand right now, that nurse, if if he or she got sick on the job, would have to try to put, figure out which one of the hundreds of patients that day or the thousands of patients that week got them sick. That is a mathematical impossibility. Same thing goes for that worker at the checkout counter at the supermarket. He or she would have to figure out or point out which worker got them sick. It is absurd. So the workplace presumption, uh, the, the presumption of workplace exposure is, is one piece right there. As for your question on, on workers who, who are not in the workplace, mm-hmm. we have to remove, Darcy, all the hurdles uh, for workers to access quarantine and isolation, paid family leave. We have to ensure uh, prompt access to unemployment insurance benefits uh, by reforming the uh, state's partial unemployment insurance standards. We have to remove penalties for part-time work because now a lot of places are are not having their workers come in full-time, mm-hmm. so that would be helpful. We have to re, uh, remove restrictions on the eligibility for unemployment for voluntary separation. That's when an employee has a either has a heightened risk uh, themselves or is aware of an unsafe condition in the workplace. So we have to have that. And, you know, then we need to have regular increases in unemployment insurance uh, to ensure that those who are out of work can can receive an adequate wage replacement. So those are the things we're working on right now that are really necessary moving forward. One of labor's priorities before this pandemic was winning rights for gig workers, including rideshare drivers, food shoppers, food delivery workers and many others. So how have they fared? How have gig workers fared during this pandemic? Not well, Darcy, I'll tell you that. Uh, the pandemic, and amongst all the things it's done to us as a society, uh, it's also highlighted the disparity between the rights of gig workers and employees. Mm-hmm. Because, um, you know, just in the last few months, uh, we had the Postmates case actually back in March. So we have now, in addition to that, the Uber and Lyft case. These, these court decisions have reaffirmed what we've already known for so long, that these workers are, in fact, employees. And if there was ever a time for the legislature to pass a comprehensive law to protect these workers, it's now. Mm-hmm. Throughout this pandemic, so many gig workers are still doing the things that they would normally do, obviously at reduced rates, right? There are, mm-hmm. less, there are fewer people taking rides anywhere. But we do have a lot of people who are getting deliveries at home. Uh, particularly food deliveries, all these things that are going on. These workers still, to this day, going throughout this six months in, they don't have any workers' comp protections, any uh, overtime or minimum wage protections. They don't have any harassment protections. Uh, they have nowhere to file you know, uh, uh, quick grievances. It mm-hmm. takes a while if you don't have a union. Uh, and, and they don't have the right to organize. It is a travesty that they're going through all this. Most of them are working even more hours now because there isn't a lot of work available. So to think about it, they have to work more hours just to in fact make what they would normally make in a non-pandemic time, which means they are making far below minimum wage. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. So it's, it's, it's really just really uh, shown us all, for anyone who didn't know what's happening here with, the, with, with their situation, it's made it that much more obvious, I think, to, to so many people. And the fact that the court decisions keep coming back 
time after time saying this fact, these workers are employees, should really get us to a point now where we codify these court decisions and make them the law of the land in the state of New York. And what else is labor advocating for as a way for uh, to move us all forward? Well, look, you know, our economy is devastated. I think you said uh, you opened with, I think, our, our unemployment rate last month was close to 16%. Mm-hmm. And it's probably even more than that. So we really do have to build and rebuild our economy. And we have to do that by, by creating middle class jobs. We have to, there are opportunities out there. You know, there are opportunities that we have to take advantage of, whether it's increasing investment in public transportation and roads and bridges and telecommunications infrastructure, offshore wind, uh, renewable energy projects. All those things are available to us. And then we can look to new industries, uh, adult use marijuana that can bring in a whole new industry with solid wages for workers. We have to explore all those options. And then. As we get back to work on a regular basis, and, and Darcy, hopefully we pray that it's sooner than later, we have to we have to ensure that working families have access to child care. Mm-hmm. You know, we learned at the outset of the pandemic that parents and families need the access to affordable child care to provide a, a safe place, uh, work, a safe place for children mm-hmm. so that they can continue to uh, participate in the edu- their educational activities uh, while, you know, allowing parents to actually go back to work. So that's really been highlighted here, I think, these last few months. And maybe things that people weren't looking at before this transpired, uh, hopefully people are looking about at it now. Obviously, the labor movement is shining a light on these things, but we need our elected officials to also understand where we are moving forward. Um, and the last thing I, I would say is this, Darcy, on this whole situation, is that working men and women have been victimized by this pandemic in a lot of different ways, but we can't allow them to be victimized moving forward. And so because of the economic downturn and because of all the cutbacks and the lack of really money in this economy, when we cut vital services, what happens is poor people, marginalized communities, they are disproportionately impacted. So now is the worst possible time to reduce services because in many cases they're the lifelines for so many New Yorkers. And so, you know, we're working to get uh, money from the federal government, funding from the federal government. And, and unfortunately, Mitch McConnell has been a hindrance here from, from the outset and he continues to be so. But we need money from the federal government. We must, in fact, and work with our congressional delegation in New York, calling for funding from the federal government for our uh, for aid to our states and localities uh, so that we can continue to run our healthcare system to full capacity and our educational system, our schools and our transportation system and our infrastructure and all the things that we need to continue to do to provide, you know, a standard of living and a quality of life we can all be proud of and that, you know, that we need for basic survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's why in addition to, to asking for the federal funding, what we have been very clear about is that in addition, in addition to what we get, and hopefully we do get something from the federal government, is that we must raise revenue in the state and everything should be on the table. And that includes taxing those uh, who are well off, uh, you know, the wealthy, uh, because we need to make sure that we continue these services. All right. Well, it's a tall agenda, but it covers worker safety, the health of workers and uh, an economic recovery. I would say this. We have an opportunity over these next few months to move forward together. And again, I think the labor movement can set a standard for that, as I opened with. 
mm-hmm. that uh, with two and a half million members pulling together, we can we can accomplish what we set our minds to when we join together, public sector, private sector, building trades. And that's what we're focused on. And I would just urge everyone, you know, election day is a little more than two months away, that we have an opportunity in November to sort of change the dynamics here. And I would urge, of course, all of our members to get out and vote. And for those who who want uh, to vote by absentee ballot, to get in touch with your local board of elections uh, and get those ballots so that uh, you can be part of this process, because that's how we make a difference at the ballot box, Darcy. And, mm-hmm. and I'm confident that our two and a half million members and their families will will join together and make their voice heard on November 3rd this year. Well, Mario Salento, uh, our president, the president of the New York State AFL-CIO, thank you and happy Labor Day. Thank you, Darcy. You too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Union Strong podcast. If you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe and give us a rating. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary-treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State unions strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong.